welcome to Through the Keyhole. I'm your humble host, Jeremy Key. On this episode of The Keyhole, it was my distinct privilege to talk to Mr. Dean Abbott, a writer, Twitter personality, and reservoir of deep wisdom. I added that last part. Mr. Abbott focuses his efforts on virtue, tradition, family, and faith. In the following episode, we discuss the good that can be found on social media, particularly on Twitter, the meaning that can come from suffering, the lessons that one can learn from suffering, and other sundry topics. If you enjoy this episode, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Please also consider leaving a review on whatever platform you found us. It will really help the show reach a wider audience. You can find me on Twitter at Jeremy A. Key, as well as at The Keyhole, both of those spelled K-E-E. Here's my interview with Mr. Dean Abbott. Enjoy the show. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today, tonight, whatever time of day it is that you're listening to us. Uh, my name is Jeremy Key. This is the Keyhole Podcast. And today I have a very special guest on with me. Um, you may know him as Dean Abbott, but I just know him as uh, a friend that I've made on Twitter, which is a weird thing to say in this day and age. And I could give a proper introduction for him, but I'd rather use his own words to introduce him. So uh, to quote Mr. Dean Abbott, as someone who is romantic by nature and has had a strong sense of the sacred since childhood, I can look back and see how most of my interaction with this culture has been an attempt to shame or psyop those things out of me. So Dean, where does that thought come from? What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, let me say, I think it's very interesting that you expect me to know what I mean by my tweets. <laughs> do you think that just because I wrote something on Twitter, I understand it? Um, <laughs> no, before we get into that, I'll tell you, you know, it doesn't sound strange to me at all to say um, that we are friends from Twitter uh, because I've been on Twitter really actively for five or six years now right and i would say lots of people i now consider close friends i met through twitter and um and so many so many good things in my life have come because of twitter so i don't know if you want maybe you want to maybe we come back to talking about twitter later if you want or if you want me to kind of like to divert and go there because that's interesting um I was having a conversation just yesterday, as a matter of fact, with a friend of mine. Uh, uh, I think I was actually telling him that I was uh, going to be interviewing you today. And I told him how we, we met on Twitter and we just kind of became fast friends on Twitter. And, and he said, well, that's, I think that's really great that, that you've been able to make a friend on, on a, on a medium like Twitter. And, and, on the one hand, yeah, I, I am kind of surprised by it. But on the other hand, I've always thought that Twitter is kind of what you make of it. Sure. And so, like, tell me, tell me about your experiences making making actual friendships on what is considered to be like a cursed social media platform. Right. All right. So let's back up and talk about Twitter for a second. First of all, like so many things in life, your a user's experience on Twitter is a reflection of the user, right? Um, On the whole, my Twitter experience has been um, fantastic. Now, for a couple of reasons. One, I don't, on Twitter, I don't argue. Hmm. Okay, I don't. uh, And also, I don't... I don't run an account that is inflammatory or that, and I don't tweet about politics or current events and that kind of thing. Um, and so that maybe, that maybe makes um, my, gives my experience a, a particular tone, right? Like um, I tend to tweet about, uh, I don't even know how you would describe what I tweet about. Um, I would say psychological and spiritual matters uh psychological spiritual growth maybe you want to call it that 
Yeah. You know, and um, and so I also block aggressively. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and blocking aggressively, I consider to be self-care. And that is a statement that I'm going to actually uh, tweet while I talk to you. So here I go. Um, so because of that, I might, you know, I have this policy that I tolerate zero negative energy in my mentions. So, you know, I, I don't mind questions. I don't even mind discussion. But um, if if it comes across to me as uh, critical or bringing any kind of negative energy into my life or space, you're gone. Um, you know, I I literally just sometimes I have no problem blocking people just because they're weird, right? Um, and and I do get comments from weird guys mostly like weird kind of these like weird red pill incels or whatever you want to or whatever they are yeah um and so i just so i block aggressively the other thing i do is i um i i pursue relationships with people who are interesting to me hmm. so i am an i am an inveterate dmer right so if i like someone's tweets or whatever um, I just send them a message. Uh, and over the course of years doing that, um, you know, I've developed quite a few friendships that way. And, um, and also, I am very open to taking those friendships off Twitter. Yeah. So, I mean, there, I've had... I have friendships that began on Twitter that we just, you know, have a few DMs and say, Hey, you want to jump on zoom and, um, and do this kind of thing. Not that, not that infrequently. Hmm. And I think too, it helps that I'm a little bit adventurous with that. So a couple of times I have uh, had free time in an evening and just tweeted something like, I'm going to be free for two hours tonight. Uh, any, how many of you want to jump on Zoom? Huh. And I just schedule, you know, two or three half-hour talks yeah. with people. And um, and I get to know people that way, too. Uh, and so because of the way I use it, I guess, Twitter has brought um, an enormous number of um of blessings into my life. Um, all, and the other thing I think is that is simply to remember that all those accounts are people, yeah. right? They're not, not just um, words that float across my screen. They're, they're people. And, um, and so those are people you can connect with. Hmm. I think the other, the other part of it too, is that my content um in, for whatever reason, moves a lot of people to reach out to me. Yeah. So, um, I oh, for the last few months, I've been doing one-hour Zoom consultations, strategy sessions for people who want to talk about whatever personal problem they have and they want to try to strategize about it. And one of the reasons I started that is that I just got, I was just at the point where I was getting so many DMs from people asking for help and advice that, um, that I just couldn't keep up. Yeah. And so, um, and so I get to meet a lot of people that way too. Yeah. People who, you know, DM me for questions, help, advice, whatever. So, so again, the point is, your Twitter experience is 100% a, um, a, re, a reflection of you, right? So I, I don't understand people who get on Twitter, and, you, and I see this sometimes. They literally <clears throat> are complaining about the content that's in their timeline. And I'm like, <laughs> didn't you follow that person? Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, are, you una- are you unable to click the, un- the unfollow button? 
right? Yeah. Um, and and the, the people literally are complaining about timelines that they built. Yeah. As as if they're a victim, right? Like, come on. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit like a it's a bit like a museum curator walking right. to the main gallery and saying, "God, these paintings suck. Why do we have these?" Right, like, right, right. Why, why did I right. buy all these? Yeah, right. yeah. It's and that that's the that's the thing that always strikes me as interesting is is it's this um, it's this it's almost like this pattern that we see everywhere. It seems like of people who are seeking out things to be upset about. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's like like when when Donald Trump was still president and it, there there was more than just a cottage community um, of of people who whose whole, whole essence it seemed like was following him on Twitter, following him on his public engagements, and just God, can you believe this guy? Can you believe what he says? Like this guy's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. My my life has has become so much worse since he became president. It's like, well, you follow him obsessively, and he he grates on you like nails on a chalkboard. Like, go outside, go read right. a book, do something else. But yeah, it's it's just it's that you curate your Twitter experience. You are the one. No one else is clicking follow, but you. You're the one who's saying, okay, that's someone who, whose opinions whose ideas I want to keep track of. And if it's, if it's causing you uh, clinical distress, then maybe it's time to look in a mirror and ask what it is you're really looking for in your Twitter experience. Right. So why do you think, and, and I'm giving you the opportunity here. You're, I know that you're a humble dude, but I'm giving you the opportunity here to, to, to stroke your own beard, I guess for a minute. Why do you think that so many, so many otherwise total strangers are reaching out to you? They're, they're trusting that Dean Abbott is an actual person mm. and they're trusting that Dean Abbott has some sort of experience or some sort of valuable knowledge is, isn't just as you kind of implied at the beginning, just like throwing words together and hitting tweets. Like, what is it? that you why do you think that people are so drawn to you so quickly and so trustingly that's a good question and you know and i don't know i mean i think at, at this point i i think i'm getting close i'm getting close to 11,000 followers nice that's that's not a huge i mean i think that's much larger than the average Twitter account. I think the average Twitter account's like 700 users, uh, followers or something. But it's not, you know, it's not 20, 30, 50, 100,000 or whatever. Sure. Um, and it's taken me a long time to get to that point. Yeah. Um, and I think I, my account would have grown faster if I had been, uh, if, I, if I had tweeted more about politics or whatever, my, con- my controversial hot take of the day. Right. Um, and I think the fact that I don't do that actually in a way makes me, makes what I write more relevant in some ways to people. Hmm. That, um, you know, so we, we live in a society where we have a kind of masquerading constantly about what matters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and Twitter's a good place to see this. So every day uh, we get told here is what matters today. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, whatever is in the news, um, whatever's, you know, what, what's the new show coming out on Netflix or, or whatever it is that we're told today is the thing that matters. Yeah. And I think maybe the, everybody, so millions of people are caught up in that, Mm -hmm. but I think many people know that's false. They know that that's, that, that doesn't matter. And they are, and, and many of those millions of people, ha- it's interesting, I guess, that 
The process often is developing a sense of falseness hmm. before you can even, before you grasp what's true. And so I think many people are in a place where they are developing a sense that what they are told matters, Mm -hmm. doesn't matter, but they haven't yet put together how it is that they can know what does matter. And those are the people I'm trying to speak to. Mm. And when I am successful at that, I think some of those people read what I write or what I post and it resonates with them in a way because they're in that trend. They're kind of transitioning Mm -hmm. from um, coming out of the coma of our culture to try to see, see through the, the masquerade of, priorities that we're given. Hmm. Um, I also think that it, it you're, you mean, you're asking me why people respond to me they, on Twitter the way they do. And that's a hard thing because you'd have to ask the other, the, them why, why they do it. But I think, I think my tone has a lot to do with it. Like, um, I'm rarely brusque with people. Once in a while, I am. Um, and I also, and I've, I've, I've tweeted this before, the primary audience for all of my tweets is me, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, I might write something that I am convinced is true. I might write something I'm convinced is wise. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I will live it perfectly, right? Because those tweets are are notes to myself. And I think because a lot of what I tweet um, is my own spiritual and psychological and emotional growth, almost live tweeting that, right? Yeah. I think people, when, when that connects with people, it's because of that. Yeah. Um. I also think people are just extremely lonely. And um, when they encounter a voice that seems, I don't know how, I don't know how I seem actually, but I hope that I seem warm Mm -hmm. and I hope that I seem insightful, I guess, I hope. Yeah. But if that is the case, then I think when people encounter a voice like that, their loneliness drives them toward it and their fear, right? They're, they're looking for, they're looking for a presence that can reassure them in the middle of their fear. Yeah. I think. And that's at least what I'm trying to do. And, Um, and as you say that, I, I, I see how, I see how, at least most of those factors, I see them kind of interlocking because you had said that your tone is rarely brusque, you know, it's, and, you know, just being a longtime fan of your tweets, which is never a sentence I thought I would say that I'm a fan of somebody's tweets, but here we are. Um, Being a longtime admirer, let's say of your tweets. um, That's something that has always struck me is that they are, they're very even keeled and that is not a way that any sane person would describe the average Twitter experience. They would not say, yeah, I'm looking to calm down. I think I'm going to go spend a few minutes on Twitter. It's very much the opposite. And so we come, we people come across your tweets and they do, they, they speak to there. There's a, there's a level hand there and there is something very countercultural there, you know, it's, it, you're not tweeting about, and you know, God forgive me that I actually looked into this story, but you're not tweeting about Scarlett Johansson suing Disney. You're not, yeah. you're not tweeting about all these things. Like, like here's a good example. Um, one day ago. So yesterday, the, 
28th of July, 2021, you tweeted out, the immature man wants to preserve his image. The mature man wants to preserve his honor. Like, where, where do we hear that anywhere? Like, that's the kind of thing that you have to seek out. And, mm-hmm. and, but, but it's, it's the kind of thing that should be sought out because it's, you know, you say that you're, you tweet for yourself, but I think that, I think that particularly in stuff like that, I think that there's a, uh, at least uh, a grain of truth. And I think that that is maybe what speaks to so many people is like you said, they, they're learning that they're trying to understand what is true, what's good, what's beautiful by having been brought up in, in a culture, in a society that's just ugly and profane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know if you, if you were ever a Seinfeld fan. Um, oh, yeah. So there was an episode where um, one of the many episodes where George was unemployed, I think. Yeah, he was unemployed and just down on his luck. And they're sitting in the diner. And there's this beautiful woman sitting at the bar and she orders the exact same thing that George orders. And he looks at Jerry and they think like, that's weird. And, you know, they start making jokes like I should go over there and talk to her. And Jerry points out, basically Jerry points out that you should, because that's what you are not inclined to do. Mm -hmm. And every decision that you've made in your life has brought you to this point, which you're not happy about. So if every decision you've made in life is the wrong one, then maybe the opposite is the right one. And right. so, you know, it puts into, it, it puts into effect this whole chain of events. He gets hired by the Yankees, all that. But um, I think that there's, I think that there's something in that. I think that, I think that there is, I, I think that there are a lot of people um, who are, maybe starting to break through that, uh, that, that hard outer shell of just being jaded and being cynical there, you know, particularly after last year, everybody was lonely. Everybody was depressed. Everybody was anxious. And we all had an opportunity to just kind of take stock. And I don't know how many people ended up doing that, but I get the sense that it wasn't a completely wasted year, even if not much happened. Um, I, go ahead. No, I, I, you, I will say that I am staunchly anti-cynical. Okay. And, um, and that's, you know, I, I, that's part of what comes through, I think, in my Twitter feed and the other things I've written, is that, um, that I'm deep, that I'm just profoundly opposed to both as sort of, I, you know, you mentioned Seinfeld. I'm, I'm profoundly opposed to that kind of ironic detachment from life. Yeah. And I'm also deeply opposed to by nature, just by temperament to uh, a, an approach to life that um, assumes that nothing can be taken uh, to, to be what it seems, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or that's probably not the best way to say it. I am opposed to living life from a stance of protection, a self-protection, hmm. which is constantly uh, looking for what the real... Um, the real and nefarious motive of others is right. And so we see that a lot when you talk about cynicism, right? Yeah. So the, I see through these people and I know what they're really about. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm just, pro, I am, uh, I'm, I'm anti-cynicism pro sincerity. Uh, and so I guess you could say my Twitter feed is a um, sincerity Stan account. Right. Uh, well put. And so, yes, uh, pro sincerity. And I think, and maybe that, maybe that's part of why people who like what I write or whatever like it is just that I mean it. Yeah. 
Um, that, and I think actually now that you now now that you're mentioned now that we're talking about that, I think that's actually part of it. Is that I suspect that lots of people who follow accounts on Twitter look at some of them and think, "Yeah, that that person's just saying that for engagement. That person's just saying that for attention, etc." And and that you know that kind of thing probably works on Twitter. But my hope is that when people who follow me read my tweets, that it's clear that I mean them yeah. and that I am not being at the, I, I'm not being insincere yeah. uh, in the things that I say, unless I'm making a joke or whatever. I mean, and I think when I make jokes, it's obvious, but, sure. um, but with, you know, and I, I think sincerity uh, itself attracts a kind of, atten- a, a kind of attention in a culture yeah. of, um, a culture of cynicism and and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, shallowness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where does where does that that anti cynicism? Where does that let's let's go in the other direction? Where does that pro sincerity position come from? Because with you, it seems and. Maybe, maybe it's not, maybe, maybe it's not this way at all, but it seems with you to be effortless. Like you, you, I I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that when people, when people read your tweets, they, they, they get a sense of sincerity. They get a sense of what's real and, you know, in our in our billboard culture, in our commercial culture, where where what's real itself is kind of up for debate, whether it should be or not, is another podcast entirely. But it seems like mm-hmm. it seems like that is in short supply, and so when that sincerity comes across, it, it's pretty obvious what's what's the real thing and what's not, and so. Where does that sincerity come from for you? Have you always been that way? Where does it come from? Well, I think so. Um, I'm looking. I am. I, I, I'm looking up a, a quotation that I heard many years ago, uh, and I wanted to get it verbatim. Sure. But w- one of the things that's profoundly influenced me uh, is a very small little play that no one's ever heard of huh. by Thornton Wilder. Okay. Who is most famous for his play, Our Town. Yeah. I know Our Town. And he wrote this little one act play called the angel who troubled the waters. Hmm. And it's about this uh, doctor who has a chronic condition that he cannot uh, get healed. Okay. Hmm. And he hears that there is a pool of water um, that he can go to. And when he, whoever enters the pool is healed of their affliction, whatever, you know, who, whatever their problem is, yeah. um, they're healed. And if I had known that this was coming up, I, I would have found the... Um, the quotation earlier, but I would, if you don't mind, just like to, uh, to see if I can find it because it's so beautifully written and I think so profound. Uh, Maybe if we take a moment, I can find it and you can do editing and to edit out any law. Yeah. Yeah, Um, All right. All right. Lay it on us. All right. So here it is. So um, he goes to get into the pool. And an angel appears, okay? Mm-hmm. And this is the angel who stirs the waters so that they could be um, so that they could be healing, right? So the angel stirs the water and people get in and they're healed. Yeah. So the doctor goes to get in and the angel blocks his way. And um, the doctor says basically... Um, what about me, right? 
uh, am I not allowed to be healed? And the angel says to him, without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of earth as much as one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldier can serve. Um, and I thought that, I remember hearing that when I was um, in my 20s, maybe. Oh. And uh, thinking that that was uh, very profound. Yeah. And, um, and I often think of that quotation. And so if you ask me, you know, where does the sincerity, the sort of pro-sincerity come from? I mean, I think it comes from a conviction that um, it almost comes from a conviction that I am not very special, right? Mm. And that if I, like I said, if I'm live tweeting my own spiritual and emotional and psychological growth, yeah, that by putting that out there, I am, I am just sort of displaying the product of one human being broken on the wheels of living, and um, love that, and making you know, and hoping that um, my own remorse might make my voice tremble into the hearts of men, right? Uh, as the angel says, right? Um, and that that can't happen if I am fronting, hmm. right? Um, and, you know, and, and I don't put ever, I don't put really that many personal details sure. of my life online. Um, and it's not necessary because I, I, I what I tweet is, um, is my reflections on that, on the details of my personal life or whatever. Uh, and so I think my sincerity comes from you know a conviction that if i share these things first of all that i share these things that others will that i'm also saying something that's true for others yeah and also i think it comes from my own desire to live at the deepest core of reality I'm capable of. Hmm. And that I tend to see life and, and, and reality as a layered and with the shallowest layers being the most miserable. Hmm. And the deepest layers being... the most, in some ways, the most difficult and also the most glorious, I think. And um, I think my life has been marked by a hunger to live at those levels. Not to say that I've always done it well and not to say that I haven't been through my own journey and made, you know, um, certainly made my share of mistakes and or that I've always uh, lived and made the, the, the best decisions. Yeah. But I think that my life has been marked by a hunger for that, to live at that level of depth. Um, and so I think I'm always pushing to get down there. Right. Yeah. Uh, and if that is the case, you, you can't get down to the, I, I mean, I get, I'm using the metaphor down into the deepest levels, but I think you could say up, right? You can talk about, you can talk yeah. levels of consciousness up, moving up. But in this case, you know, I don't think you can get down into the, um, the deeper parts of the, of reality and carry, and certainly not consciously carry fronts, right? Not consciously, Image maintenance is the enemy of a deep life. Yeah. And if you want a deep life, 
which I think most people do. They just probably don't know they do. You, 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 you got to give up that image maintenance uh, pretty quickly because it, uh, it, in, it impedes your journey. Now, part of the, part of that journey, of course, is at every level seeing, um, seeing your falseness, right? You, at every step deeper or higher, you have a, a, um, a better insight into what, what your false self is. Yeah. Um, and so if I am sincere, if I, if my life is marked by sincerity, it's probably because of those two things, right? A genuine sense that it is my own struggle that, um, that is the source of power and the desire to move to ever deeper levels of, of, of reality, of life, of understanding. Yeah. Um, and so to be cynical would be to separate myself from those things, right? Because cynicism is fundamentally about walling oneself off from the possibility of being hurt, duped, Etc. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's off the top of my head. <laughs> to answer your question. Yeah, no, that's that may be one of the best answers to any question I've ever asked. Um, that that was that quote mm-hmm. was a hell of a quote. My goodness. Um, Thornton Wilder was an amazing, amazingly insightful writer. I, you know, I have not really given, I've not really given him a second thought, but, um, yeah, go back and read our town. It's, um, it's profound. My gosh. I, 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 don't, don't, know. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it or read it, but you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that used to be read in high schools all the time. Yeah. Um, I believe I read it in, um, in college. I, I think it back before I, back before I took college seriously, and mm. realized that I was half decent at studying and being a student. It was one of those things that was like, okay, now go home and read this and, and be prepared to answer some questions about it next week and just right. near out the other. It's um, part of the, part of the problem with the sort of the, the way literature works in these. So what we do is we take these profound works of literature that deal with, you know, uh, with, uh, in the most sensitive questions of life and meaning and death, and yeah. we push them on nineteen-year-olds, right? Who have who have no no preparation for that at all. Yeah. I think I, I I think a lot of I think you got to be closer to death to understand a lot of that stuff. Do you think you have to be closer to death to understand a lot of yeah. this? Explore mm-hmm. that a little bit because that may come off. I think that I understand what you mean because across across from me right now, there at, at my at my my nightly prayer altar, there is a little uh, cast iron skull right there next to the cruise. Right. So I think I understand, but not everyone may. So what do you mean by that? Well, I just think that um, well, let's go back to saying what I was talking about about the uh, layers of reality and 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 you know living the deepest possible life or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of great literature is about those very things, and um, certainly much of Thornton Wilder's writing is about that. And when you're eighteen, nineteen, it's so easy, and I think almost everyone at that age believes that they will live forever. Like it's it's almost inconceivable that. Um, that you are a temporary being. Yeah. Right. That, uh, and it's part of the kind of egocentricity of people at that age to believe that um, I have come into being and I am essentially eternal. Um, And not, you know, I don't think most, I don't think most really any 19 year olds would say that consciously, but many, many 19 year olds. And I certainly was one of them kind of function 
as if time were would be infinite for us. Yeah. And as if time were not passing. Uh, and I think that until you can really grasp that you are a temporary, fleeting, mortal being, um, it's hard to have an interest in questions like um, what makes what makes a life meaningful. What it, it's hard to have a sense that you should pursue those deeper levels of reality yeah. when you think at an unconscious level that things will be as they have been and that you will not die. And, uh, and, and so there are, you know, there are, there are multiple ways to be close to death, right? Um, you can be old, you can be older, you can, you can, you can know that you have aged. Yeah. I'm 51, and um, I remember when I turned 40, I realized I was at a point in life where I could clearly remember the beginning, and I could clearly see the end, right? I mean, I, I, I know I'm at the midpoint. Yeah. And so you can be closer to death simply by getting older. And you can be closer to death by having um, experienced it uh, with people you've known and, and loved who have died. Hmm. And I think those two things together, from, those are the things for most people that destroy that underlying egocentricity of our early lives uh, that, that gives us a sense that we will always be as we have been. Um, and as that part of you gets destroyed, I think it, if it works well, if you're, you know, if things work as they're supposed to, or let's say in the best case scenario, let's say it that way, <laughs> as that egocentricity gets destroyed, um, your hunger for what is permanent, what is deep, what is uh, real, uh, increases mm-hmm. and um you know and i think for some you know and and, and and unfortunately for some young people uh that get that stuff gets destroyed yeah um through suffering right uh, especially like i'm thinking you know uh young people who have physical difficulties either they you know what they're, they're sick or or whatever it is that um, very early on makes clear to them that they are temporary and fleeting and, and mortal. Uh, and so that's what I mean when I say, I think you have to be closer to death to, to care yeah. about the things that great writers might have to say to you. Yeah. And you know, that, that kind of, that kind of goes back to something I had said a few minutes ago about how, Last year, 2020, the world just stops turning and, and everyone is, is glued to their phone, glued to the TV. They got to know how many cases are in their town, how many cases were reported in their kid's school. They, they have to know. And then, you know, we're all, we're all shuttered up at home and, and we have no choice but to just kind of, we, we, do, we do have a choice. We don't have to reflect on on this this universal brush with death that we all experience Mm. but i mean that that was what i saw 2020 as over and over again was was myself obviously but everybody we were we were given this opportunity to to look at what was happening well what was happening hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of people were dying off before, before people even knew what was going on and, and they were dying in these wretched conditions and they were having to say goodbye to their loved ones through a telephone that the nurse that they had known for four days was holding up to their ear at arm's length and just a world that none of us ever thought 
again, going back to the whole, the whole um, perception of immortality that comes with youth, none of us ever probably thought that we would be living in a world where that was the reality. And, yeah. and so we were, we were confronted with, with this, this virus that didn't really seem to discriminate based on age, I guess it discriminates to some degree, but like race, it affected everybody. Um, health status, it got professional athletes and it got the morbidly obese and it got everybody in between. Like it just, it, it got who it got and it didn't care who that was. And so everybody was, was at risk. And, and, and so, you know, it was, it was this interesting rare opportunity for people to be able to take a step back from working in their, their fluorescent, passive aggressive office environments and take a step back from from you know making sure that they go to class on time and and making like the things that were important started coming to the fore i think and and in my you know in my perhaps a bit pollyannish outlook i thought well this is great in a, in a sense like that putting a good spin on a bad situation, this is an opportunity for everyone to kind of reevaluate. And, you know, like you said, look into those deeper layers, go a little bit deeper because, because again, we don't know, like you might get it while you're out getting groceries. And that's like, that's where your life essentially ends is when you had to go uh, get another box of oatmeal cream pies or something like that's, that's what did you in. We just don't know. And I saw a lot of that, but then I also saw, it, it seemed like it, it seemed like it was Robert Frost's um, two, two roads diverged in a yellow, in, in the yellow wood. And like a lot of people went one way, but it seemed like a lot of people went the other. Um, some people leaned into it and, and realized that, yeah, the life I was living in 2019 Maybe there's something better, but then other people just went the other way. And, and I don't know where exactly I was going with that, but it's just, we, we've, there is something to that, that, that having to be close to death or having to be um, at least aware of it as a possibility, um, you know, memento more, you know, remember your death, think of your death. How do you, how do you remember your death if it hasn't happened? Well, you remember the very simple truth that eventually it will. Right. Like we don't have to, we don't have to come close to death to, to necessarily experience a closeness to it because it's, it's the one thing that ties everyone who's ever lived together. Everybody's everybody who's ever lived has died and right. everyone who's alive now is going to. Um, right. And so yeah, it's, it's, you know, for people like you, for people like me, we think about that stuff and they're almost, I don't know if calling it a sense of urgency is the right, is the right way of, of putting it, but there, there's a shift that occurs when you realize that not only are you not perfect, but you're also not immortal. And when you put imperfection mm -hmm. and mortality in the same room together, you know, you're, that's that's fire and gasoline and so it's you know you need to start figuring things out right right yeah yeah i go ahead and i i, I had a, a thought but i it's it slipped my mind well i'm sorry i i said a lot of words um i have a bad habit of, of saying quite a few words um i mean i had i had this whole list of topics and then we guessed talk about Twitter of all things. And we ended with death, which I think is actually, I think that's an appropriate cycle. Start with Twitter and end with death. Um, do you, uh, do you want, go ahead. Do you want to continue or are you wanting to wrap up? I'm thinking, I'm thinking less wrap only because okay. you kind of, you in the best way possible, you've mm -hmm. punched me in the face. Um, oh, well, I'm so, I, I, no, I, don't, don't apologize. I 
no, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I, I, this is exactly what I, I was hoping and, and kind of expecting. Um, it was like talking to your Twitter account, which I guess makes sense because you are your Twitter account. Right. Um, so before we end, I like to end on a good note. I like to end on, on something constructive. And I think that this entire conversation has been something constructive, but what, what advice would you give? What advice would you give? Let me ask you this. What advice do you find yourself giving the most often? Hmm. I, I actually have two things to say about that. Yeah. Um, the advice I give most often to people is to have boundaries, right? Uh, actually, it's actually even deeper than that. It is to think of life in a way that is um, empowering to you as an individual. So here's a great, here's the example, the standard example I use. A, a young woman comes and says, how do I get my boyfriend to do X or stop doing X? Yeah. Okay. So my advice is always to reframe that in a more empowering way, which is to say, why do you tolerate it when boyfriend does X? Mm. Okay. Because to accept that you can't control others, but that you can set a boundary and you can decide what's acceptable to you and what's not, et cetera. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm, I'm constantly advising people to, reframe the questions of life in uh, a way that centers their power and centers what they can control. Hmm. Um, And related to that is that I'm also constantly telling people to um, be quiet enough to learn, to listen to their inner voice of guidance. Right. Hmm. I I really believe that um, we, we as human beings do have, an inner sense of what is right for us and what is not. And that, uh, and so I'm constantly telling people to, to cultivate that. And it is from that, that you set your boundaries, right? So once when you have an, a, a sense of what you, who you are and what that inner voice is telling you is right for you. And then you set a boundary to do that. Right. So, um, girlfriend doesn't like it when the boyfriend uh, gets mad and yells, right? So deep inside, she knows that's not right. Sure. And so she has to accept that. And, and, uh, and part, of, um, part of the struggle most people have is either in recognizing what that inner guidance is saying, mm-hmm. Or actually accepting what it's saying, right? Because if you accept that your inner guidance is saying boyfriend should not be yelling at you, then what's going to happen is that you're going to lose that relationship, right? And so you don't want to lose the relationship. So you basically defy your inner voice. So those are, my, those are the things I say most often. Listen, mm-hmm. listen, and obey. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Listen and obey. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, that obviously that sparked more questions. Do you find in these, in these private messages that people send you, um, would you say that your, for lack of a better term, your audience is more male, more female, a fairly even split? Um, I think it's slightly more male, Yeah, but I mean, it's not as male as, um, uh, okay. So I don't know how, I don't know the percentage breakdown of like people who follow me on Twitter, but in terms of people who reach out to me, I would say it's probably slightly more male. I do have women who reach out. Yeah. Usually they have different issues, but sure. Yeah. That's, 
Go ahead. One other thing I'd say is that I'm many people conceive of their personal problems as relationship problems. And I say that kind of thing a lot too, right? So um, I'm fighting with my boyfriend or my girlfriend all the time. So we have a relationship problem. When if you really trace it back, the issue is that you don't have a relationship problem. You have a problem as a person. (laughs) And, um, and you, and that's, and that is making itself seen in the context of your relationship but the problem is not in the relationship. The problem is in you and in the way that you uh, conduct yourself, the way that you think. Uh, and so, again, so then the solution to that is to reframe what you're thinking in a more empowering way, yeah. which it then leads to acting on your preferences and desires and convictions. But, but in order to do that, you have to hear your inner voice. So um, those are the three things that are all tied together. I think those are three good things. Um, one final question, and this is not really, not too terribly related to everything we've talked about, but kind of maybe in a way abstract. Um, who would you say, who would you say you're influenced by? Mm. Um, I've been influenced by many, many people, of course. Yeah. Um, I have been influenced certainly by Thornton Wilder, right? Um, many, uh, you know, I, in my larger worldview, certainly um, C.S. Lewis, massive influence on me. Uh, Chesterton's big influence on me. Um, Aristotle's ethics uh, and the, the sort of um, the tradition of virtue ethics has been a big influence on me. Um, Stoicism, very influenced by Stoicism, um, Marcus Aurelius, and um, massively influenced by Stephen Covey, who uh, you may not know because he I know he that was, name. Who is he that? Died, he died uh, just a few years ago at 82, but uh, in uh, about 1989, he published this book called "The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People," yeah. um, which I read when I was in my 20s and. Um, I think I read it at a more profound level than most people do. I think most people think of it as a business book, mm-hmm. but the first thing that came that I got from that book is the idea that um, reality is ordered um, and that it is governed by a set of principles that uh, if you live according to them, you can have predictable results. Uh, and prior to that time I had been, um, you know, in my own thinking, I had been essentially, even though I grew up going to church, I had essentially been at, at a profound level, at a more profound level, a, um, a modern materialist, right, who believed that uh, life occurrences were random. Yeah. I didn't know that until I read Covey, but then I, when I real, when I read his argument saying that life is governed by principles um that was a revelation to me yeah and so uh been massively influenced by stephen covey and you know in many ways covey's work was a uh, a reiteration of a kind of mix of aristotelian virtue ethics and stoicism um and so massively influenced by by him um more recently been very influenced by John Bradshaw and his work on shame. Um, and then of course, you know, writers across the internet, uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter's, you know, uh, people I follow on Twitter, um, and have followed for years. I've been very, and been influenced a lot by Ed Lattimore. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, the founders of uh, the Fraternity of Excellence, uh, mm-hmm. Zach Small and Craig James, been very influential on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very influenced by the Manosphere, um, mm-hmm. in its uh, more wholesome iterations, we could say, right? I mean, because if you I, listeners may not be familiar, but the Manosphere started about 15 years ago as a series, of, mostly as blogs at that time. Um, 
dealing with all kinds of men's issues from how to relate to women, etc. And over the years has kind of split into multiple factions and camps. Um, But I, and so I I certainly have been influenced by that, although I'm not uh, an ideologue about any of that sort of thing. Um, I do think that the basic principles that they put forward with regard to uh, intersex relationships are true and mm-hmm. often quite helpful if they are understood in a nuanced way. And, 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 and my tweets about relationships and the tweets I've written addressed specifically to men, et cetera, kind of reflect that. And that's one of the things I've been told uh, about my Twitter feed is that um, a lot of my, a lot of those tweets reflect a kind of more nuanced view of issues that some parts of the manosphere have make a make, make a living discussing things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's just that's something that, and that's, you know, that's something that I'd, I'd love to have you back on um, to talk about is, you know, the, the concept of, of toxic max masculinity and, and just what masculinity is in general and, and how, how, um, just how how it's come to be viewed as something to be overcome or to be abolished right. rather than something that maybe has grown outside of its bounds and just needs to be trimmed back a little bit or you know reinterpreted mm-hmm. or something like that. So I'd love to have you on to talk about that. But sure. you said something else interesting about your influences. You mentioned Aristotle, and um, that was that was something as we've been speaking this evening. Uh, I've had in the back of my mind, um, ask him what the good life is, ask him what constitutes the good life. So maybe, and obviously that's no small question, but maybe you can, we can end on that note of just what is your vision of the good life? What, what, what does Dean Abbott aspire to live? The good life, I think is the, is the life lived with a day-to-day aspiration to love. Hmm. And that, um, and this is me being sincere, right? Because you don't hear this talk much. That it is in the pursuit of love that we live um, a, a good life and the hard part of that is that to love means to accept suffering yeah and that um it is the paradox of that answer that is very difficult for people because what i'm saying is that um the good life is not the life free of suffering the good life is the life in which suffering has meaning and that that meaning is conferred by love. Yeah. And that um, in the end, love is all we want. We don't want a life without suffering um, because that would be a life without love. And I think it is the mark of the human being that if we have love, we can bear any suffering. And so the question, you know, earlier I was talking about sort of desire to live at deeper levels of reality. Well, how do you get to those? Yeah. I think the answer is that you get there by chasing, um, by chasing love and by asking oneself constantly what that would mean. Yeah. What would it mean to love at this juncture i think that's a great note to end on dean yeah well thank you i i really appreciate your time i i i appreciate your wisdom as always i don't know how often people thank you uh for for what you share but um i i I, go ahead i do genuinely want to thank you um because i've 
again, I, I'm saying all sorts of things that I never thought I would say in my life, but I more than once I have been genuinely moved by, by what you've had to say. Um, oh, and you know, I, I know you on, I know you on a, a, a slightly more personal level than, tw- uh, le- level than Twitter has to offer. I know the kind of guy you are. Um, I know that it all comes from a sincere place and that just adds to the weight of it. Um, so thank you, not just for being a guest, but for uh, being a voice on an otherwise quote unquote cursed platform. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, two or three things. Um, the easiest way to find me and to get a hold of me is um, on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, just at Dean Abbott. If you're not on Twitter, you can always email me at dean at deanabbott.com. Uh, my first book is available called On Community and Characters, available on Amazon if people are interested in that. And I'm oh. currently currently going through the torture of preparing uh, my next book, which is supposed to be out um, before the end of 2021, will be available through its wow. publisher. And I'm sure will be available on Amazon then, too. That's, that's very exciting. Um, I wasn't aware of the second book, so congratulations on that. Uh, preemptive congratulations. Um, I can guarantee you that uh, it will not be as good as Thornton Wilde. <laughs> well, if that's the if that's the bar that you're you're comparing yourself to, then I think most people will fall short. So be easy on yourself. Probably. Dean, I, I genuinely appreciate your time. You're welcome on the show anytime you want. Um, be good to yourself. Be good to others. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeremy.